Chapter Seven of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven. Not long after these events, returning one day from an excursion, I found the camp almost deserted and an unusual silence pervading all around. Upon looking to the right and left to discover the cause of so much quietness, I saw a procession of soldiers slowly winding their way from a peach orchard, where they had just deposited the remains of a comrade. Who could it have been? I did not dare to go and meet them to inquire, but I waited in painful suspense until the procession came up, with arms reversed. With sad faces and slow and measured tread, they returned in order as they had gone. I stepped forward and inquired whom they had buried. Lieutenant James V. was the reply. My friend! They had buried him, and I had not seen him. I went to my tent without uttering a word. I felt as if it could not be possible that what I heard was true. It must be someone else. I did not inquire how, when, or where he had been killed, but there I sat with tearless eyes. Mr. and Mrs. B. came in, she sobbing aloud, he calm and dignified, but with tears slowly rolling down his face. Lieutenant V. was thirty-two years of age. He was tall, had black wavy hair, and large black eyes. He was a sincere Christian, active in all the duties devolving upon a Christian soldier, and was greatly beloved both by officers and men. His loss was deeply felt his heart though brave was tender as a woman's he was noble and generous and had the highest regard for truth and law although gentle and kind to all yet he had an indomitable spirit and a peculiar courage and daring which almost amounted to recklessness in time of danger he was not an american but was born of english parents and was a native of st john new brunswick i had known him almost from childhood and found him always a faithful friend. When we met in the army, we met as strangers. The changes which five years had wrought, and the costume which I wore, together with change of name, rendered it impossible for him to recognize me. I was glad that he did not, and took peculiar pleasure in remaining unrecognized. We became acquainted again, and a new friendship sprang up on his part, for mine was not new, which was very pleasant, at least to me. At times my position became very embarrassing, for I was obliged to listen to a recapitulation of my own former conversations and correspondence with him, which made me feel very much like an eavesdropper. He had neither wife, mother, nor sister, and, like myself, was a wanderer from his native land. There was a strong bond of sympathy existing between us, for we both believed that duty called us there, and were willing to lay down even life itself, if need be, in this glorious cause. Now he was gone, and I was left alone with a deeper sorrow in my heart than I had ever known before. Chaplain B. broke the painful silence by informing me how he had met his fate. He was acting in the capacity of an aide-de-camp on General C.'s staff. He was sent to carry an order from headquarters to the officer in command of the outer picket line, and while riding along the line he was struck by a minnie-ball, which passed through the temple, killing him instantly. His remains were brought to camp and prepared for their last resting-place. Without shroud or coffin, wrapped in his blanket, his body was committed to the cold ground. 
they made his grave under a beautiful pear tree in full bloom where he sleeps peacefully notwithstanding the roar of cannon and the din of battle which peal forth their funeral notes over his dreamless bed one more buried beneath the sod one more standing before his god we should not weep that he has gone with us tis night with him tis morn night came at last with its friendly mantle and our camp was again hushed in comparative repose twelve o'clock came but i could not sleep visions of a pale face and a mass of thick wavy hair matted with gore which oozed from a dark purple spot on the temple haunted me i rose up quietly and passed out into the open air the cool night breeze felt grateful to my burning brow which glowed with feverish excitement with a hasty word of explanation i passed the camp guard and was soon beside the grave of lieutenant v the solemn grandeur of the heavens the silent stars looking lovingly down upon that little heaped-up mound of earth the death-like stillness of the hour only broken by the occasional booming of the enemy's cannon all combined to make the scene awfully impressive i felt that i was not alone i was in the presence of that god who had summoned my friend to the eternal world and the spirit of the departed one was hovering near although my dim eyes could not penetrate the mysterious veil which hid him from my view it was there in that midnight hour kneeling beside the grave of him who was very dear to me that i vowed to avenge the death of that christian hero i could now better understand the feelings of poor nelly when she fired the pistol at me because i was one of the hated yankees who was in sympathy with the murderers of her husband father and brothers but i could not forgive his murderers as she had done i did not enjoy taking care of the sick and wounded as i once did but i longed to go forth and do as a noble chaplain did at the battle of pittsburgh landing he picked up the musket and cartridge box of a wounded soldier stepped into the front rank and took deliberate aim at one rebel after another until he had fired sixty rounds of cartridge and as he sent a messenger of death to each heart he also sent up the following brief prayer may god have mercy upon your miserable soul from this time forward i became strangely interested in the fifteenth chapter of first corinthians the doctrine of the resurrection and the hope of recognition of friends in heaven became very precious to me for i believe with regard to our departed loved ones that when safely landed on that heavenly shore where sightings cease and sorrows come no more with hearts no more by cruel anguish riven as we have loved on earth will love in heaven and infinitely more than we are capable of loving here Quote, few things connected with the great hereafter so deeply concern the heart as the question of personal recognition in heaven dear ones of earth linked to our hearts by the most tender ties have departed and gone away into the unknown realm we have carefully and tearfully laid their bodies in the grave to slumber till the great awakening morning if there is no personal recognition in heaven if we shall neither see nor know our friends there so far as we are concerned they are annihilated and heaven has no genuine antidote for the soul's agony in the hour of bereavement all the precious memories of toil and trial of conflict and victory of gracious manifestations and of holy joy shared with them in the time of our pilgrimage will have perished for ever 
the anxiety of the soul with regard to the recognition of our friends in the future state is natural it springs from the holiest sympathies of the human heart and any inquiry that may solve our doubts or relieve our anxiety is equally rationable and commendable tell me ye who have seen the open tomb receive into its bosom the sacred trust committed to its keeping in hope of the first resurrection ye who have heard the sullen rumbling of the clods as they dropped upon the coffin lid and told you that earth had gone back to earth when the separation from the object of your love was realized in all the desolation of bereavement next to the thought that you should ere long see christ as he is and be like him was not that consolation the strongest which assured you that the departed one whom god has put from you into darkness will run to meet you when you cross the threshold of immortality and with the heavenly rapture to which the redeemed alone can give utterance lead you to the exalted saviour and with you bow at his feet and cast the conqueror's crown before him and is this hope vain shall we not even know those dear ones in the spirit world was this light of hope that gilded so beautifully the sad dark hour of human woe only a mocking ignis fatuus so soon to go out in everlasting darkness is this affection so deep so holy yearning over its object with undying love to be nipped in the very bud of its being nay it cannot be there must have been some other purpose god could not delight in the bestowal of affections that were to be blighted in their very beginning and of hopes that were to end only in the mockery of eternal disappointment if fate unite the faithful but to part why is their memory sacred to the heart oh thank god for faith for a faith that takes hold of that which is within the veil there we behold our loved ones basking in the sunshine of the redeemer's love there they see him face to face and know as they are known and they speak to us from the bright eternal world and bid us weep not at nature's transient pain congenial spirits part to meet again just at this crisis i received a letter from a friend of mine at the north disapproving in strong terms of my remaining any longer in the army requesting me to give up my situation immediately and to meet him in washington two weeks from date i regarded that friend's opinions very much especially when they coincided with my own but upon this point no two opinions could differ more widely than did ours it is true i was becoming dissatisfied with my situation as nurse and was determined to leave the hospital but before doing so i thought it best to call a council of three mr and mrs b and i to decide what was the best course to pursue after an hour's conference together the matter was decided in my mind chaplain b told me that he knew of a situation he could get for me if i had sufficient moral courage to undertake its duties and said he it is a situation of great danger and of vast responsibility that morning a detachment of the thirty-seventh new york had been sent out as scouts and had returned bringing in several prisoners who stated that one of the federal spies had been captured at richmond and was to be executed this information proved to be correct and we lost a valuable soldier from the secret service of the united states now it was necessary for that vacancy to be supplied and as the chaplain had said with reference to it 
it was a situation of great danger and vast responsibility, and this was the one which Mr. B. could procure for me. But was I capable of filling it with honor to myself and advantage to the federal government? This was an important question for me to consider, ere I proceeded further. I did consider it thoroughly, and made up my mind to accept it with all its fearful responsibilities. The subject of life and death was not weighed in the balance. I left that in the hands of my Creator, feeling assured that I was just as safe in passing the picket lines of the enemy, if it was God's will that I should go there, as I would be in the federal camp, and if not, then His will be done. Then welcome death, the end of fears. My name was sent into headquarters, and I was soon summoned to appear there myself. Mr. and Mrs. B. accompanied me. We were ushered into the presence of Generals Mick, M., and H., where I was questioned and cross-questioned with regard to my views of the rebellion and my motive in wishing to engage in so perilous an undertaking. My views were freely given, my object briefly stated, and I had passed trial number one. Next I was examined with regard to my knowledge of the use of firearms, and in that department I sustained my character in a manner worthy of a veteran. Then I was again cross-questioned, but this time by a new committee of military stars. Next came a phrenological examination, and finding that my organs of secretiveness, combativeness, etc., were largely developed, the oath of allegiance was administered, and I was dismissed with a few complimentary remarks, which made the good Mr. B. feel quite proud of his protégé. This was the third time that I had taken the oath of allegiance to the United States, and I began to think, as many of our soldiers do, that profanity had become a military necessity. I had three days in which to prepare for my debut into rebeldom, and I commenced at once to remodel, transform, and metamorphose for the occasion. Early next morning I started for Fortress Monroe, where I procured a number of articles indispensably necessary to a complete disguise. In the first place I purchased a suit of contraband clothing, real plantation style, and then I went to a barber and had my hair sheared close to my head. Next came the coloring process. Head, face, neck, hands, and arms were colored black as any African, and then, to complete my contraband costume, I required a wig of real negro wool. But how or where was it to be found? There was no such thing at the fortress, and none short of Washington. Happily I found the mailboat was about to start, and hastened on board, and finding a postmaster with whom I was acquainted, I stepped forward to speak to him, forgetting my contraband appearance, and was saluted with, Well, Massa Cuff, what will you have? Said I, Massa send me to you with dis here money for you to fotch him a darky wig from Washington. What the blank does he want of a darky wig? said the postmaster. No matter, dat's my orders. Guess it's for some noitering business. Oh, for reconnoitering, you mean. All right, old fellow. I will bring it. Tell him. I remained at Fortress Monroe until the postmaster returned with the article which was to complete my disguise, and then returned to camp near Yorktown. On my return I found myself without friends, a striking illustration of the frailty of human friendship. I had been forgotten in those three short days. 
I went to Mrs. B.'s tent and inquired if she wanted to hire a boy to take care of her horse. She was very civil to me, asked if I came from Fortress Monroe, and whether I could cook. She did not want to hire me, but she thought she could find someone who did require a boy. Off she went to Dr. E., and told him that there was a smart little contraband there who was in search of work. Dr. E. came along, looking as important as two-year-old doctors generally do. "'Well, my boy, how much work can you do in a day?' "'Oh, I reckon I can work right smart, can do heaps of work. Will you hire me, Massa?' "'Don't know, but I may. Can you cook?' "'Yes, Massa, can cook anything I ever seen.' "'How much do you think you can earn a month?' guess i can earn ten dollars easy enough turning to mrs b he said in an undertone that darky understands his business yes indeed i would hire him by all means doctor said mrs b well if you wish you can stay with me a month and by that time i will be a better judge of how much you can earn so saying dr e proceeded to give a synopsis of a contraband's duty toward a master of whom he expected ten dollars per month especially emphasizing the last clause. Then I was introduced to the culinary department, which comprised flour, pork, beans, a small portable stove, a spider, and a medicine chest. It was now supper-time, and I was supposed to understand my business sufficiently to prepare supper without asking any questions whatsoever, and also to display some of my boasted talents by making warm biscuit for supper but how was i to make biscuit with my colored hands and how dare i wash them for fear the color would wash off all this trouble was soon put to an end however by jack's making his appearance while i was stirring up the biscuit with a stick and in his bustling officious negro style he said see here nig you don't know nothin about makin biscuit just let me show you once and dat ar will save you heaps o trouble wid massa doctor for some time to come I very willingly accepted of this proffered assistance, for I had all the necessary ingredients in the dish, with pork fat for shortening, and soda and cream tartar, which I found in the medicine chest, ready for kneading and rolling out. After washing his hands and rolling up his sleeves, Jack went to work with a flourish and a grin of satisfaction at being boss over the new cook. Tea made, biscuit baked, and the medicine chest set off with tin cups, plates, etc., supper was announced. Dr. E. was much pleased with the general appearance of things, and was evidently beginning to think that he had found rather an intelligent contraband for a cook. End of chapter 7